The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. Go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 5. We've been making our way through Mark really since we launched here September 9th. We're wrapping up chapter 5 today, just plugging along. We're going to take you all the way through the life of Christ, up through the, uh, the Passion Week. We're kind of getting a peek of that at the end of this month as we celebrate Easter, but we are making our way through the book of Mark. We've been kind of flying, really. Uh, we spent the last six months looking at over a year of Jesus' life, but now we are seven weeks into a look at a 36-hour period of the life of Christ. I mean, Mark really slows things down here. When you consider spending you know, a hundred and some verses looking at a year's worth of Jesus' ministry, and then eighty-some verses looking at just a couple of days, I think that what Mark is doing is he's, he's slowing down, not just so that we can take a better look at some specific uh, instances that happen, but I think that he's also just trying to say, look, this is Jesus' life. I mean, he doesn't just sit around and loaf and do a little bit of ministry here and there when he's bored or when the need arises. I mean, Jesus is like Jack Bauer. All right, He does not stop moving from the time he hits the ground all the way through his ascension. He just devotes his entire life into ministry, into serving people, into loving people. John tells us at the end of his gospel that if everything had been written down that Jesus did in the three and a half years that he walked among us doing his ministry as an adult, John said the world itself would not be large enough to contain all the books. All right, obviously speaking figuratively, but what John is saying and what we see through Mark as we, as we zoom in on these couple of days here is that Jesus was a busy man. He was the humbled servant. And so this sequence of events that we're kind of wrapping up today that we've been looking at for seven weeks now began with Jesus teaching on the kingdom of God. And we walked through a short sermon series looking at the kingdom of God, what it's like, how we enter, how it impacts us now. Then from there, we see that Jesus and his disciples get in a boat. They cross the Sea of Galilee. They encounter the storm that, that starts to sink the boat. And then from there, Jesus lands on the other side of the lake and immediately is met with these demon-possessed men. And then from there, they say, well, Jesus, we'd rather you, you leave here. We don't want any of that, so why don't you just take a hike? And Jesus gets back in the boat and comes all the way back on the other side of the lake from where he left And so our text today picks up in verse 21 where we find Jesus returning to Capernaum. When you put the chronology of it together, we find that this is happening just the day after he left. And so the storm that almost sank the boat, the demon-possessed man who was was possessed by a, a, a legion of demons, the same day that Jesus does that, he comes back here. And as he arrives, we find that there is already a great crowd gathered waiting for him. Pull our curtain back here a little bit. Perhaps some of the boats that had experienced the storm the night before, maybe they saw what Jesus did and so they came back from where they had left him and was telling everybody. Maybe they were just optimistically hoping that Jesus would come back that day, but the crazy part is they really had no legitimate reason to just be hanging out on the seashore waiting for him. But that's how consumed they were with Jesus' ministry. They're just going to wait there until he comes back because given enough time, because this was Jesus' stomping grounds, they know that at some point he's coming back. But whatever the reason, they weren't interested in letting Jesus rest. 
All right, do you remember what he's been doing? He taught all day. He got on the boat. He fell asleep as soon as he could. They had the storm. Then he's casting out demons. He's being run out of town, getting back in the boat, coming back. And what's waiting for him? A good night of rest without a time change involved? No, he sees this crowd of people that are just wanting even more of his time. And so instead of seeing this crowd and charting another course and going elsewhere on the lake, he he continues sailing towards Capernaum because he knows that there are people there in need of them. There was never a shortage of people needing help from Jesus. There still isn't. And today we're going to look at a couple of them specifically. Two people that really couldn't be that much more different from each other. But yet both of them had great need. Both of them were in desperate need of help. Both of them were at the end of their rope and had absolutely nothing left that they could do. Sound familiar? Have you been there? Are you there now? So pay attention. Because you might find out as we, get, as we dig into the story that we're actually reading about you. And so first I want to introduce you to a man named Jairus. I'm just going to put this out there now. This is like the fourth version of his name that I have grown up with. When I was a kid it was Jarius, and then it was Jairus, and then Jairus. And now I'm comfortable in thinking that it's Jairus. The problem is if I get nervous and I fall back on what I think I know. And so if you hear all of these different variations, uh, they all have significant meaning, and I'm doing it on purpose. So uh, if you get confused, that's your fault and uh, not my fault. But let me tell you about Jairus. Jairus was a Jew, all right, a ruler in the synagogues even. And while that might not have necessarily meant that he was a teacher in the synagogue, what that meant was that he had a respected position within it. And so his responsibilities would have included taking care of the scrolls, taking care of the synagogue, maybe arranging for teachers, perhaps even being the administrator of the schools. Uh, but he was just maintaining the day-to-day business of the synagogue. Didn't necessarily have to be a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a scribe or a rabbi, but, but it was a respected position. It was one of prestige. And, and this means that he was well-respected. He was religious. He was devout. He was an elder within Judaism. If we were to look at our own terminology as somebody who works within the context of a place of worship, more as an administrator than perhaps a teacher, then, then we could very comfortably say that Jairus was a pastor within the church that he worked for. That would be kind of our cultural equivalent. Just to kind of place in your idea as we begin to paint this picture of who Jairus was. He's a pastor. And so he's got it made. All right? He's employed. He's admired, respected comfortable job but Jairus has a problem because he's got a little girl back home a little 12 year old girl and she's sick worse than sick she's she's dying there's no hope for her there's no cure I hate it I hate it when my kids are sick I hate it when I'm sick I hate it when Sarah's sick but, but I mean how many of us are moms and dads All right, we know it's worse when it's our kids even more so when it's your little girl. If Uriah gets sick, man, Bill's character, right? Okay, he gets a cold. Colds are good for your immune system somehow or another, but not the end of the world. But when Gracie gets sick, my little 16-month-old daughter Gracie, when, when she doesn't feel well and she's snotting up and, and all she wants to do is climb up in my lap and, and be hugged and a wrapper, oh, man, that, that pulls on my heartstrings. That breaks my heart quick. 
I have a bond. I do have a bond with my son. My, my little boy is three, three and a half. Uh, if you've not met him yet, you're in for a surprise, uh, treat, blessing, curse, something. But I have a special bond with him. I mean, he's my firstborn. He's, he's my son. He wants to be just like me. And so I have a bond with him that I don't think I'm ever going to have with Gracie. But it's the same for her. I mean, I've got a bond with her. She's got me wrapped around her finger. I think she's got me wrapped around a handful of fingers. In fact, I don't even really call her Gracelyn or Gracie. For the most part, I call her baby girl. That, that's, my, that's my name for her. And it's cute because Uriah has heard me call her baby girl so much that he calls her baby girl. And can't stand when my kids are sick. I don't know what I would do if, if, she, got, if she got really sick. I mean, the kind of sick where the doctors say, just leave her at home because there's nothing we can do for her. Make her comfortable while she slips away. And so I can only imagine the anguish that, that Jarvis feels, his only child, this little girl, his baby girl, beyond hope, laying there in the bed, deathly ill, and he knows that she's going to die. And he's running out of options because he can't do anything to fix her. And so in the back of his mind, at some point, he begins to wonder, is it true? Is this Jesus really the healer that people say that he is? I mean, perhaps he was present there in the synagogue that time when Jesus cast the demons out of that one guy that Walt preached on. Back in Mark chapter 1, was it? Chapter 2? way back in Jesus' ministry. He may have been there for that. He may have just been familiar with the rumors. But remember, Jairus was a Jew. I mean, he worked in the synagogue. He was well acquainted with the rumors floating around about this Jesus. No doubt he was part of the damage control as the religious elite of the day tried to, to squash this messianic message of this rebel who had the audacity to say that people are forgiven or that he was the Messiah or that he was the one to whom all of the Old Testament prophecies spoke. And so he knows in his mind, he knows who Jesus is, and he knows that this hatred, this developing between the Pharisees and Jesus, because Jesus' message is radically different. Jesus' message was one on grace. It wasn't about works. It was on grace, not law. So Jairus knew who this Jesus was. And at some point he began to think, maybe Jesus can help me. He can stay home and watch his little girl die. Or he can do something totally radical and seek help from the one who can heal people. And so Jarus does the latter. I mean, he's got no choice, right? He's not going to stay home and, and watch his baby girl die. And so Jarus is in this crowd of people who is gathered waiting for Jesus to come back in his boat. And I can see him now pacing back and forth, thinking, okay, Jesus comes back. I got to ask him if he can help my my daughter. And I know that I work at the synagogue. And we, I might even know this guy. He might not like me, but he heals people. And they say that he loves kids. And just watching, waiting to see Jesus come back because he knows that Jesus is his only hope. Perhaps even wondering if he's making the right decision, because he knows as a respected elder in the synagogue, if he himself becomes part of Jesus's fan club that's probably not going to bode so well for his job security. It's probably not going to endear him to his friends who hate Jesus because Jesus' message is so much different from their own. 
So all of these things going through his mind. Wondering, even as he's waiting for Jesus, did he make the right choice in leaving his baby girl back home? To, to surrender that last chance to be with her in case she didn't make it through the afternoon? But then Jesus shows up. And all of these doubts, all of these, fer- these fears, all of these worries disappear. And Mark tells us that Jairus falls before Jesus. Rulers in the synagogue don't fall before Jesus. But Jairus did. Because he knows that there is no room for arrogance at the feet of the Son of God. Only humility. And Mark tells us that he begged Jesus. He implored him. He said, please, please, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Please. So you've got this ruler of the synagogue in front of this crowd of probably thousands of people just falling down at the feet of Jesus and saying, I have got no help. None. If you don't come to my house and heal my little girl. He's not even, he's not even exercising a perfect faith here. He could have said, okay, Jesus, I know who you are and you can heal a long distance. We see that on behalf of a centurion later in the ministry of Christ. But, but his faith isn't even perfect, but all he knows is that Jesus can help him. And so even if it means losing his job, his friends, his life, none of that matters because he wants his little girl to be made well again and he knows that Jesus can do it. And so here he is in front of thousands of people with the audacity to ask Jesus, Jesus, can you leave all of these other people who need you just as much as I do? Maybe, probably not as much as I do because my little daughter's dying, but I know this crowd needs you, but will you just come to my house and put your hands on my little girl? Wondering, even as he asks him, what is Jesus going to think about me? And Jesus agrees to it. He says, yeah, I'll go to your house. And so Jesus begins to walk to Jairus' house, and the crowd follows, naturally. They wanted to be where Jesus was. And they followed aggressively, pressing in all around him. They were fond of doing that. If you remember when Jesus was teaching the day before, the crowd had got around him to the point where Jesus finally got in a boat and said, okay, guys, this ain't working. Let me get in a boat, put off from the shore a little ways, and then I can talk to all of you without you basically walking me into the water because they just wanted to be around him. So they, they crowded him. They were pressing all around him. This faceless mob, this sea of voices, following Jesus as he goes to Jairus' house. And there's somebody else in this crowd. Somebody else I'd like to introduce to you. Somebody who, like Jairus, is desperate. Somebody who, while watching Jesus leave to go heal this little girl, realizes that she's seeing her only hopes of a miracle slip away. Because she's got a pretty big problem too. Scripture tells us that she had been bleeding for 12 years. For as long as this little girl had been alive, that Jesus was going to her house, for as long as this little girl had been alive, this woman had been bleeding. Probably a uterine hemorrhage of some sort. And so you can only imagine the physical misery and discomfort that comes with that from losing that much blood continually for 12 years, having a racing heartbeat, low blood pressure, constant dizziness, 12 years of just feeling like garbage. And that's not even the beginning of her problems because Scripture tells us that she was equally miserable in all of the treatments that they tried to fix her with. We don't have time to get into it right now, but 
some of the Jewish writings for being cured of an of a issue like this are just downright ridiculous. Talking about boiling various types of wine with onions and drinking it and carrying things. And, and in the process, she was flat broke because even though the quacks of the day didn't have any idea how to fix her, they were content to, to give her this potion and then take her money. And so she's miserable, she's suffering, she's broke, and even that isn't the beginning of her problems. Because here, here's where the problem fundamentally was. According to Jewish law, according to the Mosaic law that was enacted for God's people, this woman was considered ritually unclean. See, if you rewind it back to when the law was given, you would find, and I know that this is a little, perhaps not the best uh, subject matter, but, but women in the Old Testament were considered to be unclean when they were on their cycle because that was a symbolic depiction of the corrosive and defiling nature of sin. And so God looks at that and says, okay, I'm going to give my people an idea of how I feel about sin. And so therefore, even after a woman is completely done with her cycle, for seven days, she's unclean. Which means that she can't touch people. She can't gather with people. After seven days and you went through a period of purification, you were okay. But what happens if you never stop bleeding? then ritualistically speaking, you're never clean. And so for her, what that meant is that among her peers as a Jewish woman living in a Jewish culture, for 12 years there had been no personal touch. There had been no high fives, fist bumps, pats on the back. Sarah and I were talking the other day, where's Leela at? I'm going to pick on Leela. Talking about how Leela, there she is, would be great for working at our welcome center because she's always giving people hugs. This woman hadn't been hugged in 12 years. It meant that she couldn't worship in the synagogue. It meant that for her, there was no community group. There was no friendship with people. It meant there was no intimacy with her husband. So even if she had been married somehow, he's divorced her a long time ago because there's something wrong with her. And so she has spent the, 12, the last 12 years in total isolation, even as watching people go past her in life. She can't touch them. She can't talk to them. She can't be close to them for 12 years. No lasting or respectable job. What work she did find, all of that money went to the doctors who were robbing her blind. She had nothing. No friends. No one to turn to. I love going home and have my kids yell hi as soon as I walk through the door. And they run and they hug me and they kind of fight with each other to see which one can hug me first. And this woman probably has forgotten what a hug feels like. Twelve years. And as she sees Jesus in the crowd, she knows that she's got one shot at a normal life. She has one hope of being restored. And that hope is in Jesus. She's in this crowd, and she's just as desperate as Jairus, 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 that fella. Just as desperate as Jairus was. But, but see, here's the problem. Jairus is liked and respected. And she is despised and rejected. Jairus can approach Jesus and humble himself and talk, but, but she's not even supposed to be in the crowd. Because she's a woman, an unclean woman. 
And so she doesn't have the luxury of just saying, Jesus, let me share with you what's going on because I've got a problem too and I trust that you can fix it. She knows that she can't approach him like that, but that's not going to stop her because either by superstition or by sheer ignorance, she believes in her mind that if she can just touch the clothes that he's wearing, that would be enough to heal her. That's how strong her faith was in this man named Jesus. And so here she is in this crowd, and she's slipping through and and trying to keep track on them and and not draw attention to herself because if they find out that she's in the general proximity of people, they're just going to call her out on it because she's unclean. They don't want anything to do with her. And so she's slipping through and finally gets close enough to just reach out and touch his robe. And time stops because immediately... Immediately, she knows that she's been healed. The bleeding stops. Whatever it was that had been causing that issue was healed. And about the same time she's processing that, she realizes that Jesus has stopped. Mark tells us that Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples, being the followers they were, they were rather incredulous. They were like, uh, Jesus, you're kind of in the middle of a crowd here, and you can barely walk because people are bumping up against you and pressing in around you, but, but you're going to stop and say, who touched you? Who didn't touch you? But Jesus is looking around, and as his eyes go across these people who are around him, he fixes them on this woman who's terrified. She's not terrified because she fears being condemned for her disease. The disease is gone. She's not scared because she's embarrassed for coming up and touching. She's long past all shame if that means that she can be healed. Why is she terrified? She's terrified and she's trembling because she recognizes as soon as she touched him and she was healed, she found out that he was so much more than just a miracle worker. She knew from that encounter with Jesus that He was the Son of God. She knew that she had touched divinity. And if I get goosebumps just thinking about being there, seeing that, how do you think she felt when she realized as an unclean woman, I I just touched God. And He healed me. And so Mark tells us that she, like Jairus, fell down before Him, proclaiming to the world, He is so much greater than I am. Worshiping Him for who He was. And she explains what happened, her motivation, what she had done, what had happened, so that everybody around could listen to her tell this crazy story about how she just touched Jesus and all of a sudden was healed. And so while everyone's listening to this fantastic story, And perhaps thinking, okay, well, she's making it up because she just wants to be able to hang out with us and maybe go to church or hang out in our community group. There's no way that she's healed. She's just saying this because we know who Jesus is. And then Jesus responds for the benefit not just of this woman, but for the benefit of those who are just waiting to see what Jesus' response is to this outcast, despised woman who had the nerve to touch his clothes. And Jesus looks at her and says, Daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. He calls her daughter. 
That's the only time in Scripture Jesus ever calls a woman daughter. And here's the thing. She's been bleeding for 12 years. So it's not completely unlikely that she's older than Jesus. Okay? And even if she's not older than Jesus, who at this point is in his early 30s, he's about my age, if she's been bleeding for 12 years and she's been on her own for 12 years and she's been trying to take care of herself and pay for her medical bills and be isolated for 12 years, there's no way in the world that she's young enough to be Jesus' daughter. And so why would he call her that? What is Jesus communicating to her as he looks her in the face as she's terrified at what has just happened and calls her daughter? And this is what I think Jesus is saying. Jesus is calling her daughter because she doesn't have a Jarus in her life. She doesn't have a dad who's willing to risk everything if it would mean that she's healed. She's been supporting herself. She's been living by herself. And so she's been watching this guy named Jarus possibly give up everything out of the love that he has for his little girl seeking help from Jesus. And Jesus is looking at her and calling her daughter saying, hey, you see the love that Jarus has for his little baby girl? I love you that way. I'll be your Jars. I will love you unconditionally like you have never been loved unconditionally in your life. You have been hated. You have been rejected. You have been despised. You have been unclean. I've, I've taken that from you. You're my daughter. I can't help but think that many of our friends and our family and our neighbors in Crozet are just like she is. Where she has tried to, to fix that hole in her life, that issue that she's got, and she's gone to the doctors, and, and she recognizes that the only hope she has for restoration is in Jesus. But so many of the people that live in this community, they feel the need, they know that something's not right, and so they're trying to fix it. Because right? nobody wants to be miserable. Nobody wants to go through life feeling estranged from, from something. But we all know that there's something bigger than us out there. And so people try to fix it in various ways. Some of us try to find acceptance with our peers. And so we model our lifestyle to reflect what everyone else around us is doing. And so we try to get a bigger house or a bigger car and we want to look like the Joneses. And so if that means that we're going deeper into debt and having to work more, well, that's okay because our neighbors have accepted us. We have acceptance with our peers. But see, the problem with that is there's always somebody in your peer group that's got a bigger house or a flashier car. And so you work longer hours and you go deeper into debt just so that you can try to rack these things up so that the guy beside you is impressed and saying, ooh, I wish that was you. And then you look around and realize that your husband has left you or that your wife has checked out emotionally years ago, or that your kids look at you like you're a stranger, but, but that's okay. Look at how many square feet you got. Look at how nice your car is. Look at your office. Yeah. How's that, how's that problem solving going for you? Some of us turn to substances, drugs, alcohol. Many of you went to uh, the Pashram event at First Baptist last week with our community group, and we spent a couple hours just working with homeless people, listening to their stories, trying to figure out as they walked past how much one guy had to drink. Because it doesn't take a long time of conversation with these people to realize that so many of them are, have just drowned their life in a bottle, or drugs, just 
trying to fix that void that they know they've got. They really don't know how to answer it, and so they, they turn to substances, and it doesn't turn out so well for them. Some people turn to sex, especially women who didn't have a father figure, because to them, that's their way of gaining acceptance. It makes them feel loved. Some of us, some of us turn to moralism. Some of us try Jesus. Some of us try religion. Because we see people at church, or we know people, who call themselves followers of Christ, and, and they seem to have their stuff together. I mean, they definitely got something that I don't have. And so I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to figure out, okay, here are the do's, and here are the don'ts, and that's going to fix the problem in my life, because I'm going to be just as religious as they are, without having any concept of who Christ is, what grace is, or what freedom is. And so they, they fix that hole with religion for as long as they can follow the rules. But what's the problem with that? You can't follow the rules. That was the purpose of the rules, was to show you that you can't follow them. That's why we have Jesus. And what a beautiful thing that Jesus says to this woman. He declares her clean. He doesn't just say, okay, I've fixed your problem. I've taken care of the issue. He says, you're clean, healed, saved. Jesus literally tells her, your faith has saved you. And so what we're seeing here goes beyond just a simple physical healing. We're seeing a spiritual healing as well. So many people, so many people get wrapped up in religious externals. I'm going to do these things so that I can feel good before God and try to fix this emptiness that I've got. But the problem with that is that Jesus, I'm sorry, that Isaiah tells us that all of these things that we do, the do's and don'ts, if our motivation for doing them is to gain God's favor, then the attitude that God has towards those works, Isaiah says that they're like filthy rags. So the rags that this woman would have used to control her bleeding as disgusting as that is to think about, that's what Isaiah says that our righteous acts are before God if we're doing them in the hopes that God will look at us and say, well, you're a pretty good person. So Jesus says, you're clean. She humbles herself in faith and reaches out to Jesus. And Jesus removes from her every last bit of that thing that was separating her from Him, from society, from that fulfillment, from that hopelessness. Jesus says, be healed. I've taken this from you. Go in peace. Live in the reality that I have done this for you. He doesn't just say, go about your way healthy as a horse. He says, go in peace. Be healed. Live in that reality. Because I can't think of anything that's more tragic than those of us who have gone to the cross, who have in humility turned to Christ, and Christ says, I have forgiven you, yet for some reason we want to live as though He hasn't. We want to live as though every day there's more junk in our life that's separating us from God, rather than simply living in the reality that if we are in Christ, everything has been removed. We are as clean in God's eyes as this woman was in Jesus' eyes, this woman that He calls daughter. I mean, this is one of, the, one of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel prior to the cross that we see. So as Jesus is talking to this woman, perhaps talking to the crowd that's gathered around, the story continues because meanwhile, 
Jairus is thinking, okay, Jesus, this is great and all. I'm glad that you've healed her because you've shown that you have the power to do that. And yeah, you've demonstrated your compassion, but Jesus, we've got to go. My daughter's sick. And runners from his house come up. And with the tactfulness of a machete, they say, your daughter's dead. Why are you going to bother the teacher anymore? It's too late. Just leave him alone. She's dead. And Jesus hears what they're saying and quickly tells Jairus, do not fear. Only believe. Yeah, easier said than done, right? And so leaving the crowd behind, Jesus allowed no one to follow him except for Peter, James, and John. And they go to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And while they're there, they see that the funeral festivities have already started. There are mourners there, both legit, who are upset that she's died, and the professionals that are paid to mourn at funerals. It was part of the culture. If there was a death in the family, you were expected to have as many people as possible mourning. Therefore, some people, it was a job for them. You pay me money, and then I will wail and weep and thrash, and, and we'll just have a, a little hoorah here. Jesus sees this going on, and, and then it gets a little bit weird again, because Jesus likes to say things that, that kind of don't make a whole lot of sense, and he asked them, he said, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Uh, okay, Jesus, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that this girl has died. All right, I do this for a living. I go to these places. I mourn for these people. She's dead. She's dead, Jesus. What do you mean she's sleeping? Jesus doesn't waste time explaining to him what he's talking about. He kicks him out of the house, and then he... And Jairus, Jairus' wife, Peter, James, and John go into the room where this lifeless body of his baby girl was. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how he felt as he walked in there and, and his girl was alive when he left, sick but alive, right? And then he's gone, and now that he's seeing her, he just sees this empty shell where his precious little daughter used to live. And as he's trying to process this, he sees Jesus take her by the hand, and he says, little girl, I say to you, wake up, get up. And at the same time, he's trying to figure out, oh, okay, why is Jesus, he doesn't even have time to wonder why Jesus is telling this little girl to get up, that she gets up. And while he's trying to process all of that, Jesus says, hey, give the girl some food, all right? She's been through it, she needs some food. And don't tell anybody what I've done here. Okay, as if the people outside the house aren't going to realize that this girl has come back from the dead, right? But Jesus says, don't tell anybody what I've done. Because here's why. Here's the deal. Jesus' primary mission wasn't one of healing. Okay? Jesus certainly did that, but his primary mission was not to heal. His primary mission was to save And so perhaps Jesus was not wanting the crowd to think, okay, we have a miracle worker, and then once again just crowd around him looking for these miracles rather than letting him focus on his messianic mission as the deliverer of God's people. Jesus does heal. But more important, he came to save. And so as our band comes up, in a little bit we're going to sing our last worship song. There's... There's so much that can be pulled out of the text. And I know that I've done hardly any justice to everything that's in there, but, but here's where we need to land the plane. 
Okay, so many themes that are prevalent in this story, so many pictures, so many symbols that we see, but there's an overarching theme that we need to focus on, and that is this idea of coming to Christ in faith, true faith, knowing that Jesus is the only object that's worthy of it. I know, I know that some of you here today are wrestling. Perhaps you've bumped against Jesus in the crowd without really reaching out to Him. And so you're wrestling because you find yourself at this place where, where there's a part of you that's like, ah, I need Jesus, but ah, I've just got all of this stuff that I'm fighting with. Job security, or, or maybe just fear and uncertainty over what it really means to, to give yourself to Christ. And, and as we go through the text and we've seen Jesus in action, as we've seen His unyielding compassion, his willingness to just continue to pour himself into people, unclean people, people that are part of his enemies, and still love them and serve them and save them. I pray that the Holy Spirit has been at work in this place. Just if you're not, if you're not a follower of Christ, then I pray that today there's something going on in here that makes you say, I want to be. Maybe there's a part of you that wants to reach out in faith. Will you trust God this morning to save you? Will you trust your soul to Him? Are you willing to, to submit yourself and to humble at the foot of the cross where there's room for anyone? Or are you going to hold on to these things that are stopping you? We saw Jairus turn his back on everything, kneel before Christ and just beg for His help. We saw this woman who's been separated from society for 12 years just reach out in faith, misguided faith. Jesus said, your faith has healed you, not my robe. She thought the power was... In, I mean, none of these people have a perfect faith. But what little bit they had, all they knew to do was just reach out to Christ in some way. And so for some of us here this morning, maybe for you, that's as you sit there in your seat telling God, okay, God, you're holy, and I'm not. I know that. I can see that. I'm just as separated from you as this woman was society. But, but God, I believe that Jesus loves me. I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient to cover my sins. And so, God, as best as I can figure out how to do it, I just, I, I'm trusting in that as my means of salvation. I'm trusting in Christ. Will you do that this morning? Or are you going to fight? Are you going to be part of the crowd that might bump into Jesus but not really reach out and grab Jesus? Jesus has demonstrated His power and authority over the natural, the supernatural, sickness, death. The authority and mission of Jesus is converging on this cross that we're going to get to so quick. And the question for us has always been, how are we going to respond? So in the next few minutes as our band plays, I want you to think about our journey mark for the week. It's pretty simplistic, but there's so much truth packed into it. There could be no better object of our faith than Jesus. All right, You can rest in your success to try to fulfill you. You can rest in your religious external behavior to somehow reconcile you to God, but that's not going to get you very far because the only means we have of reconciliation with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. He's the only object 
that's worthy of our faith. Will you trust Him to save you? Maybe you're here this morning and you've trusted Christ as Savior. But you have a hard time really believing Jesus when He said, you're healed, be at peace. You have a hard time believing God when He says, you're my sons, you're my daughters. I love you. There is no more condemnation. Some of you need to repent of your own self-sufficiency and thinking that, that God is only pleased with you as long as you continue to obey Him. Because here's a newsflash. We're going to fail in our obedience. And if our joy is wrapped up in how well we can live, there's no joy in that. Joy and freedom and peace comes from realizing that if I am in Christ, He sees me as His own beloved Son. Let's go in peace. If you want to talk to Walter I about anything that I've said, if, if you want to see from Scripture how you can know that you've been forgiven, we'd love to talk with you. Don't leave here this morning just part of the faceless crowd. If the Holy Spirit is calling you this morning to trust Christ as your Savior, do it. So Father, as we wrap up this morning, Lord, we're so thankful for Your Word, for the, just the treasures that are found within Father, we're thankful that, that we see such a picture of the peace that comes even in death as Jesus demonstrates His power over death. There is nothing to fear. As she came back to life and the first thing that she saw and heard and felt was Jesus, then we know, Father, that even on this earth as we pass, we get You. That there is nothing to fear on the other side, that we will be with Jesus. Lord, we're thankful for the picture of the Gospel. And this woman who is full of this uncleanness comes to Christ and just says, doesn't even say anything. She just reaches out in faith knowing that He is her only means of hope. And He removed from her every last bit of that disease. And we see that in the cross, Father. As Your Son hung there bearing Your wrath against sin, removing from the believer, that's anyone who trusts Christ as Savior, removing all of their sin. So Father, there is so much freedom in that. Lord, I pray that if there is someone here this morning who has been wrestling, who has been searching, who has been trying to figure out what it is, that void in their life, Lord, I pray that You have shown them that that their separation from You has been caused by their sin, by their rebellion. But Lord, I also pray that You have opened their eyes to the reality that Your Son bore sin in His body so that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Lord, I pray for us as a church, as Your people, as Your saints, that like this woman, we can live in the reality that we are clean, that we are your daughter, your son. That there is no condemnation. Even as we continue to fail, there is no condemnation. Because You love us greater than any of us could ever love our own children. So Father, help us to live in that reality. It's in Christ's name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.